Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues. And I have conversations with foreign policy thought leaders who discuss their life, career, and the big events that shape their worldview. My guest today, James Goldgeier, is Dean of the School for International Service at American University. He's spent a career trying to bridge the gap between academics and academic research and policymakers in Washington, D.C. and beyond. He currently runs an initiative at American, appropriately called Bridging the Gap, that seeks to do just that. Jim is also a Russia expert, and you might recall that he and I spoke about a month after the election to discuss Russia's key strategic goals during the Trump administration. And we kick off this discussion along those same lines, but of course, now armed with more information about the extent of Russian interference with the U.S. election. Before that conversation, though, I wanted to let you know about another reward and offer available to premium subscribers of the podcast, and that is a huge 75% discount off life and career coaching with Alana Shake. Alana is a TED Senior Fellow, writer, and longtime international development professional. She is someone I have known for years, and I currently have the pleasure of editing her on UN Dispatch. She's also a trained career coach, and to be honest, I was not exactly sure what that meant, so I called her up, and we have a discussion about what career and life coaching is all about. If you think this is something that may benefit you, become a premium subscriber by clicking on the support the show link in the description field of this episode or go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to unlock that discount. And it reduces the prices of an hour long coaching session from $145 to about $40. And once you become a premium subscriber and you want to unlock that deal, I will put you directly in touch with Alana. And now here is my brief conversation with Alana about life and career coaching for the internationally interested set and beyond. For coaching services, it's people who are trying to find meaning in the work that they have. It's asking people powerful questions so they can identify their own truth so they can understand what they already know. So when I'm coaching people, I'm helping bring out, helping them understand themselves to find clarity on issues that they're struggling with. And these are people mostly working in international development or the humanitarian field, or, or could it be anyone? People who work in international development are drawn to me because they know that I'll understand their acronyms and that I, I've done these jobs. I know where they're coming from. But I actually, I've worked with teachers. I've worked with artists. I work with all kinds of people. And the training I did about intense listening and focusing and asking useful, powerful questions really applies to anyone. I don't have to know their field in detail to be able to help them as they figure things out. So what's a coaching session like then? If I, I call you up and, and we have a conversation, how does that work? Well, we start by setting an outcome, by deciding what is it that you want the phone call to lead to? Do you have a problem you want to talk through with me? Is there something going on in your life you need to discuss? Is there a decision to make? So we start by picking our outcome so that I know what you're trying to get out of this. Then I'll have you give me an overview of what's going on, and I'll start asking questions to sort of drill deeper and find the heart of what's really bothering you. And sometimes it turns out that the thing you think you're struggling with isn't actually the core issue. Other times it is. 
And so we'll spend most of the phone call with me just asking a lot of questions, sometimes very difficult questions. When you ask someone the right question, you can almost hear the relief in their voice when they start figuring things out. And then towards the end of the call, you'll start to choose the actions you're going to take to act on what you know now and to commit to the change you're going to make. Can you give an example? Like, do you, Obviously, these are probably private and, and very personal moments, but what would be an example of, of the kind of light bulb going off moment that you've experienced in your coaching career? I've had a couple that are really memorable to me, but one I can talk about in very general terms was a client who worked for an international organization that she loved, an NGO. She really loved it and she believed in its mission and she felt like it was going off track and that this place that she worked wasn't the place she'd signed on with a decade ago. And she needed to figure out, did she want to stay where she was? Did she want to try to change the organization? Did she have the capacity to change the organization if she took a stand? And what she figured out over the course of the call is that she did, in fact, love this organization enough that she did want to take a stand. And that she actually, when she sat down and looked at it, knew enough people in the organization and was sufficiently connected with senior leadership to think that if she raised an issue, people would listen. And so she left the call with this real sort of energy in her voice and her plan for what she was going to do to start talking to people and see if she could help shift the path her organization was on back to one that was truer to its mission. And that must have been like empowering. I think she was already empowered. What she needed was to know that. She needed to actually sort of take stock of all of the tools available to her and realize how many she had. Well, that's great. So, so Alana, I mean, I obviously, you know, know you professionally very well. I have the honor of, of editing you. I learn from you on like a nearly daily basis when you send me pieces on, on you on dispatch. I've, I've followed your work for years. So I, I know you and, and, and I think very highly of you, but what makes you sort of uniquely qualified uh, to be a, a a career coach and, and like, why did you start, why did you want to become a career coach in, in addition to uh, having your, your currently existing career in international development and, and writing? Uh, well, what started me wanting to do this was, you know, there is so much inequity and unfairness in terms of who gets to work in international development. There's the expectation that you're going to work for free at the start of your career there's the fact that like nobody grows up and their uncle worked in international development. You know, like your aunt might be a doctor, your uncle might be a lawyer, your dad might be a teacher and your mom's an accountant, but you don't know somebody who happens to work for doctors without borders most of the time. So there's no network you can reach out to. There's nobody to ask. And so I was blogging about international development as a practitioner, but I realized a lot of people had questions just about what is, what is it like to do this work? And talking about that, I think, made me better at doing the work, thinking about it, trying to put into words all these unspoken expectations. So that was why I started sort of demystify it, open it up a little bit. And I think I'm qualified because international development likes to push people into specialization, and I've kind of fought that. I've had a really wide-ranging career with different organizations in different places. So I've seen a lot of different corporate cultures, a lot of different management styles. I've had personal experience with most of the big international NGOs and a lot of the little ones. And if I haven't had that experience, I probably know somebody who did, so I can just ask them. 
pretty much all my friends and colleagues know I do this and they expect me to come to them and ask, you know, what's it like to work at this place? What kind of candidates do you guys usually hire? And they like to answer too, because nobody wants this field to be mysterious and opaque. And then finally, I'm actually trained as a coach. I went through a uh, pretty rigorous training program through the International Coaching Federation uh, at the Pyramid Resource Institute. And it included the neuroscience of how people make decisions and how they process change and a lot of case studies and research and discussions around individuals and performance and how they use knowledge and how they live their lives and how they function in the workplace. Uh, great. Well, thank you. I, it was great talking to you. I love trying to explain these things. Again, if you want to learn more, if you want to unlock that deal, become a premium subscriber on globaldispatchespodcast.com. Her website is also needsbrave.com if you want to learn more about her services and pricing. Of course, you get a 75% discount if you become a premium subscriber to the podcast. Okay, and now here is my conversation with Dean James Goldgeier of American University. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Still, for them, their ability to interfere in uh, U.S. elections, interfere in European elections, I mean, I think they've shown that they're quite adept at using their propaganda machine, uh, at using technology to uh, to interfere uh, across the West in elections. And so I think they are, in fact, quite pleased with their ability to do that. Now, you know, the certainly the press in the United States right now focused on who from the Trump campaign may have had coordination with them, what that looked like, how was Donald Trump involved or not. You know, the the problem is for U.S.-Russian relations is that any effort to improve the relationship would be seen through the lens of this set of activities that took place during the campaign in 2016. And so I think that there will naturally be questions raised if there are efforts to improve the relationship by the United States. Is this some kind of quid pro quo? Mm -hmm. You know, was this discussed during the campaign that these things would be done? Uh, So I I do think that it may make it harder uh, for the Russians to get things from the United States that they might otherwise have thought they would get. Uh, But, in general, I think they're probably pretty darn pleased well, with uh, their ability I mean, to disrupt. When we spoke, uh, it was in December, uh, you know, you mentioned that one of their ultimate strategic goals was to uh, lift or, or reduce U.S. sanctions on Russia. But as you just noted, that is probably politically more difficult now than it was 
before the uh, election or before Trump came into office. I mean, did that kind of Russian operation you know, backfire in a way? Well, it was always going to be hard to get the sanctions lifted. And, you know, Congress is certainly wary of, of any lifting of sanctions. There's another piece to this, certainly on the Ukraine issue, which is that, you know, one of the things that Putin has long wanted is a recognition that these countries of the former Soviet Union, uh, other than the three Baltic nations of Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, uh, that the other countries of the former Soviet Union, countries like Ukraine and Georgia uh, and Central A- and the Central Asian republics, that these are in Russia's, that these should be recognized by the West, by the United States as part of Russia's sphere of influence. Uh, and I think that is something that um, Putin can likely get from the, the Trump administration. I don't think that uh, there's a huge amount of concern in the Trump White House uh, for what goes on in these countries and uh, that, you know, given the larger framework within which the White House is operating and a lack of concern and attention to issues of human rights and democracy promotion that have been important to previous administrations, I think that Putin still has a very good chance of achieving with this Trump administration. Mm, so so the, the areas that they rightfully think are in their sphere of influence will probably not be messed with too hard by by the United States, which is interesting because there are elements obviously within those countries like, you know, places like Georgia that are like so strongly pro-European, so strongly pro-United States that uh, obviously feel like they, they no longer have such an ally in, in Washington. Yeah, I don't think they're going to, I just don't think they're going to have, they're going to have support um, from Trump or his closest advisors. They'll, they'll still have their supporters in Congress and you'll certainly see people like Senator McCain stand up for countries like Ukraine and Georgia and their their right to choose their own futures and decide what path is best for themselves. But uh, it doesn't appear that that's something that's of great concern to President Trump. In in regards to the European elections, trying to influence the elections in Europe, obviously the next big one coming up is, is France, right, in, in the middle of April. What are you seeing in terms of replications of, of what the Russians did in the United States and the, and the American elections in, in France? Well, the Russians have been, act- again, they've been active throughout Europe uh, in terms of, you know, feeding, you know, what we now call fake news. Uh, and, you know, trying to control or, or uh, use propaganda, use uh, social media uh, to try to create problems for more mainstream candidates and uh, support people like Marine Le Pen uh, in France, for example, in the upcoming election. I think what we're going to see, however, um, across Europe is probably something similar to what we've just seen in the Netherlands, which is the more mainstream candidates adopting some of the anti-foreigner rhetoric uh, of the more extreme candidates uh, and, and, you know, attempting to marginalize uh, those more extreme candidates uh, and, and thereby winning, but winning in a way in which, you know, the center politically is moving to the right. Uh, and certainly moving in a direction where concerns about immigration, uh, concerns about whether or not people are coming into the country who might be 
become terrorists or carry out activities, uh, extremist activities, uh, that this is going to be top of the mind for a lot of people and shape the discourse throughout Europe and and continue continue to shape that in the United States as well. Um, in terms of the future of, of Russia-U.S. relations under the Trump administration, are, are there any sort of key inflection points or moments that you're looking forward to in the next couple of months that might suggest uh, any sort of change of direction or any any trajectory that this relationship might might evolve to? Well, I think you know we've we've seen the announcement um, about uh, Secretary Tillerson going to Moscow in April. We've seen. The announcement that President Trump will be going to Brussels uh, in late May uh, for the NATO to meet, summit for this to meet with his NATO counterparts, and so I think you know we'll, it, it'll be interesting to see the kind of language that's used. You know, certainly when Secretary Tillerson uh, finished with his Asia trip, uh, most of the China experts were noting the way in which the language that he used uh, in uh, coming out of his meetings in China. Uh, really adopted the language that the Chinese themselves use uh, and a lot of hand-wringing about what he may have given away or the impression that he may have given the Chinese. So it will be interesting to see the way in which he, with the Russians, the way Trump with uh, the NATO allies, you know, how are they framing uh, the, the issues so what would be like an indicator of like a Tillerson adopting something of a quote unquote more pro-Russian frame? Well, I think, you know, any sort of sign that that there's an acceptance of a Russian sphere of influence in the former Soviet Union would be from a standpoint of longstanding U.S. interests and, you know, U.S. promotion of the right of countries to pursue their own futures, uh, you know, would be giving away quite a bit to the Russians. So, uh, you know, if, if he were to go up sort of give a nod in that direction to Putin, uh, it would certainly make the Russians feel like they had more of a free hand uh, in, in, again, in a part, of, a part of the world that they consider to be, you know, their rightful sphere of influence that they should be allowed to control the affairs uh, of those countries. I think in the case of, of both the way in which the relationship with Russia is discussed, as well as the, with the NATO allies, clearly for President Trump, the battle against ISIS is first and foremost as a foreign policy issue. And the the big challenge there, I mean, it's been there ever since September 11th, 2001, when people thought that there would be a natural cooperation between the United States and Russia against, uh, against terrorism. The countries have, you know, since 2001, there've been obstacles to that cooperation. Uh, intelligence sharing is an issue. Definition of the problem is an issue. We see this in Syria, uh, where the United States has had, certainly in the previous administration, you know, definitions of who and who, who is not a terrorist group. Uh, and that has been different than the Russian definition and the Russian goals mm-hmm. in Syria. So, you know, really getting a sense of whether or not the U.S. and Russia are converging in their views of terrorism and and how it needs to be addressed, whether with President Trump, who has talked about NATO needing to do more to combat terrorism, uh, you know, whether or not we'll see him continue to push that line uh, with NATO allies. Those, those are actually very helpful indicators. Thank you. 
Um, so I'd love to, to pivot now and learn more about you. You've been on my I radar for, for a while. Um, I think probably since your book with Derek Chollett, uh, was it the misunderstood years? Or I, I remember seeing it in like the tail end of the Bush years reading it. Um, yes, thank you. Yes. Uh, um, so, but I would love to, to learn a little bit more about you, where you come from, your background. So where are you from? I'm from Baltimore, Maryland. Okay, not too far from where you're and currently I, seating. That's correct. I'm back very close to home, uh, and uh, I, I I do say Baltimore. I I, I worked hard. To, uh, people didn't, you know, when I went off uh, when I left Baltimore to go to go off to college, you know, people didn't know what Baltimore was. So uh, <laughs> I did work hard to say Baltimore so that uh, so that everyone would know where I was from, not just those from Baltimore. So what what uh, did, were your parents involved in, in politics and in policy issues? Uh, my dad uh, was a doctor. My mother was a was a history teacher. Um, they certainly were uh, very politically aware. Uh, and uh, my mother, in particular, um, certainly fostered in me a belief that uh, one should always question authority and uh, and you know really be uh, intellectually intellectually curious, never take anything at face value, uh, and always think about. Uh, the need to challenge the status quo. So I've tried to keep that in mind throughout my whole career. Well, I mean, Baltimore, I mean, it's, it's you know, it, it's only like 45 minutes an hour from D.C. And, and there are people who, who commute between the two cities. Um, so what I, were, were you sort of drawn to D.C., to that policy world from an early age? Um, not really. Uh, I, you know, through high school, uh, I think most of my friends would have guessed that I would have become a medical doctor like my father. Uh, and I even started in college my first year I was pre-med and then, uh, uh, decided that that wasn't really going to be for me. And I became much more interested in, in history and politics and, and moved in a very different direction. Baltimore also, you know, is a very, um, uh, it has a very small town feel, even though it's a big city and, uh, people, uh, tend uh, even in Baltimore to sort of look at Washington as a place that's very different and, uh, not very familiar and, uh, and even far away, even though distance wise, as you say, it's pretty close by. So what, what got you interested in, in history and, and politics in college? So it was really an accident. I, uh, a friend of mine, I was looking for a class to take the fall of my freshman year of college. And uh, a friend of mine suggested that I take a European diplomatic history course, because he said the professor was fantastic, and it was European diplomatic history from 1740 to 1870, and um, I just, I was just blown away by the course and just, you know, wanted to read as much as I could, and and then really decided that I was either going to be a history or, or government major, and ended up uh, being a government major and focused on issues related to Europe. Uh, was that like you know, the Bismarck that. years or, or the, the... Yeah, so it started with, uh, you know, with, with Frederick the Great, Maria Theresa, and, you know, went up, uh, went up through, uh, through Bismarck and German, unifica uh, German unification. And then, um, uh, then uh, I, did, I did subsequently take the 1870 to the present. Oh, good. Okay, uh, so, so we're, we're so caught I, up, so, so we can get, have a conversation about overview. that. Okay, yeah, from, from Bismarck to, to Churchill. Yeah. Um, so, so, um, what, what school were you at? So this was at Harvard as an undergraduate. Okay. Um, and I guess, you know, having, having done that, that undergraduate course, I mean, at what point did you realize that this is something you want to make your, your career out of? 
Well, so when I was in college, I really actually thought I became very interested in politics and I became very involved in an entity called the Institute of Politics at Harvard, which is uh, part of the John F. Kennedy School of Government and uh, was very actively engaged and got involved in some campaigns. I, I actually thought I was going to do that I, what I w- would want to do was political campaign work. Uh, and so I, my first job out of college, I was, uh, in fact, I started about January or February of the, uh, of the end of my senior year of college. I was a campaign manager for a city council campaign in Boston and, you know, very intense experience. And, uh, we lost by a very narrow margin in November. And I, had the opportunity then to go on to do other campaign work. Uh, you know, in those days, it's interesting. This was 1983, and of course, the presidential election year was 1984. And in those year, in those days, the presidential campaigns didn't really start till uh, January of the of that of the year in which you had the election. Uh, the primaries were really the beginning. There wasn't, you know, it wasn't a four-year thing. And I had opportunities to go work on a couple presidential campaigns. And which campaign did you work on? I did not. Did. So I, oh. I, I, I decided actually after the loss in that November, uh, it was a very, uh, uh, you know, shattering experience to lose uh, by such a small margin, about a hundred votes or something. And so I then thought, you know, I, I missed uh, or what I thought was that I was really missing something more, uh, a more intellectual environment. And I was trying to think what, like, who do I know who has a career that I think, gosh, that would be really interesting. I could see myself trying to have that kind of a career. And my college thesis advisor was Professor Joe Nye, who of course is, you know, one of the leading professors in the world of international affairs a guest I, on this podcast uh, many a couple years ago so you know an amazing man and and i thought to myself gosh like here's this guy and he he's writing books and he's traveling and he's teaching students and that seems like it could be really a really interesting career so i went to see him and said you know what would i need to do to be a professor like you so he explained what it would mean to apply to graduate school. And uh, so I did apply to graduate. I, I applied to the schools he told me to apply to. I, I then showed him where I got in, and he nice. told me that I should go to UC Berkeley for grad school of the places I got in. So I, I had never been to California before and didn't even bother to visit. I just thought, well, if Joe Nye's telling me I should go to Berkeley, that's where I should go. So well, it's interesting. So like, like Nye, you also have written books, though you're both, you know, academics that are, you know, foreign policy books accessible, you know, to, to a general audience written by, you know, not published, not just by academic uh, uh, publishers, but by, you know, more, more mainstream published publishers as well. Yes. Um, so I'm not, I mean, you're very kind to say like Joe Nye. I mean, you know, Joe Nye is, of course, in a totally different league than I am. But yes, I have aspired uh, to write in a way that is accessible in the book that I did with Derek, the America Between the Wars, which covered the period from the fall of the Berlin Wall to September 11, 2001. Uh, you know, we really tried to make that for an, uh, a general audience and, and went with a publisher, Public Affairs, that's a more general press rather than a university or think tank. So who are you studying under at, at Berkeley at the time? So the two giants in the field of international relations who were at Berkeley uh, at that time were uh, Kenneth Waltz and Ernie Haas. And 
uh, they were just extraordinary individuals. They had very different views of the world and uh, very different styles of teaching and mentoring. And I feel very grateful that I was able to work with both of those individuals. So, I mean, Walt, so you referenced Walt. I mean, he is like one of the founders, basically, of the academic study of, of international relations in, in many ways. So what was your kind of relationship with him? So I, you know, I take I took classes with him. He was a he was on my dissertation committee. Um, you know, provided a lot of insight. I, actually, you know, the thing about Ken Waltz is he, he's a he's a terrific writer, and he really focused my attention on the need to, you know, be a crisp and clear writer, to be concise, and uh, I, you know, I really uh, credit his influence on that. The other person who was a big influence on me in graduate school. Uh, in the international relations field was Alexander George, who was a professor at Stanford, but worked with a number of us at Berkeley. And his work, he uh, he in sub- subsequently wrote a book called Bridging the Gap, which is was about the way in which uh, academics could do work that would be policy relevant and try to bridge the gap between academic knowledge and and policy and uh, the project that I co-direct now that's been funded for many years by the Carnegie Corporation of New York is called the Bridging the Gap Project uh, in honor of the work that Alex George did. Trying to, as you said, like make policy relevant research uh, from academia because the, you know, it, like the, the problem, at least in international relations, I think it's probably the problem in many other fields is that, you know, academics, um, academic research is usually or so oftentimes ignored by policymakers. It's not the sort of policy relevant um, and and sort of the challenge it seems that what you're doing is is trying to as you say bridge that gap, right? Because we you know we want people that take their academic expertise and make it a value mm-hmm. uh, to you know policymakers to be able to 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 understand what the what the results are and what they mean and how they could be useful. We want the broader public to understand them. But you know if you write an academic work and you write it in a way that's very obtuse and nobody can understand it and uh, they're not going to try to wade through it. People don't have time for that. So you've got to really figure out how to make it accessible. In our Bridging the Gap project, we run training workshops for PhD students and faculty members. Uh, to They come from all over the country and even some from outside the United States to, to sort of learn by doing. And uh, it's been a very rewarding effort. And the three... Co-PIs, principal investigators on the project, one is a colleague from Berkeley and one a colleague from Duke, and we were all students of Alex George, and uh, he really had a huge influence. I mean, is is the issue the kind of topics that academics choose to pursue, or is it in their presentation of of the topics? The fact that, like, you know, to, to succeed in academia, you know, you need to to write scholarly and peer reviewed articles in journals that no policymaker will ever read, and that's that's like what's valued in academia, as opposed to, you know, if you want to influence the policymakers, you want to, you know, write a, a piece for foreign affairs, which is kind of dismissed by academia. Right. So it, I think there's there are two problems. One is the one you just identified, and and that one actually is relatively easy to solve if you have somebody who can write in 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 ways that appeal to different audiences. So you take the scholarly work you've done, either for a university press book or a major peer reviewed journal, and you distill the work into a foreign affairs piece or an op-ed or a blog post. And so you, you, you don't just 
you don't just publish the academic work, and this is something that we talk about with the folks who come to our training workshops. You know, let's talk about how you take an insight that you have and get it out there for a broader audience while still doing the publications you need to do to be successful academically. So that's so that is certainly a piece of it. But the other piece is really, you know, what questions are you trying to answer? And are you answering questions that would be useful to policymakers? Uh, and especially thinking long term, you know, there are the there are the short term things, right? What should President Trump do when he goes to the summit uh, at the end of May? Uh, that's a uh, you know, that's a very short-term thing, and it may not fit into a longer sort of academic exercise. But, you know, in terms of thinking about the role of alliances, the important of alli- importance of alliances to U.S. foreign policy, uh, you know, aspects, you know, research questions uh, that would really help long-term for the United States think about the value of alliances uh, or any other topic that might be of value to policymakers, the importance of the question is really key. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of academic work, instead of thinking about what questions, if I were able to answer them, would be of great value uh, to people making policy in this area, a lot of academic questions are driven more by the methods that the person's interested in using. And so say, well, I have, you know, this methodological expertise and, you know, I'm going to, you know, use my survey method expertise to do this particular study and I'll ask a question that I can answer with my method as opposed to saying I would Mm -hmm. like to ask a question that would be of value to a policymaker. So what did you end up uh, doing your PhD on? So my PhD was turned out to be on Soviet foreign policy and the chair of my committee. So Ken Waltz was on the committee, but the chair was a, was a guy named George Breslauer, um, who recently retired from uh, UC Berkeley, a very distinguished uh, expert on the Soviet Union and then Russia. And uh, I was doing my dissertation in the mid to late 80s. And, uh, I, um, and I had gotten into this again, it's just like sort of uh, for those people who are picking classes, who are listening, who might be picking either undergraduate or graduate classes, you know, you can see what happened to me. As I mentioned, undergrad, I took this diplomatic history class and thought, oh my gosh, I want to take more of these. And before I went to Berkeley, I wasn't planning to do anything related to the Soviet Union. Before I went to Berkeley, um, uh, someone who was then on a postdoc at Harvard, uh, who is now a very distinguished faculty member there, Steve Walt, uh, had been a grad student at Berkeley. Mm-hmm. And he said to me, oh, if you're going out to Berkeley, you know, you really should take a class with George Breslauer. You're, he's a great teacher, and I know it's not your area, but uh, it, he teaches on the Soviet Union. You know, you should just take the class. And at orientation at graduate school, our, our graduate advisor said, listen, you know, in your first year, you should really take things in a range of subjects because after that, you're going to specialize and you should try different things. So this was the mid 80s. So I took a class on Japan because Japan was big then. And then I remembered what Steve Walt had said. So I, I took this class in the spring of 85 with George Breslauer. And spring of 85 turns out to be the the time when in early March, Mikhail Gorbachev became Secretary General of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. And there was this enormous transformation. And I just decided, as somebody interested in American foreign policy, I decided, well, you know, the Soviet Union was our major adversary of the time. 
And so I should learn as much as I can about it and just became obsessed about learning the language and the culture and the history and the politics and the economics and, and all of those things. And um, I was originally going to do a dissertation that looked at comparative study of U.S. and Soviet foreign policy. And my committee suggested that I do the Soviet side first. And if I had enough for a dissertation, call it a day, get the thing signed, and then I could go back and study American foreign policy later. So that's what I ended up doing. And and so on on uh, Gorbachev. So did you focus on on Gorbachev then? Did you do like real time analysis? So I actually focused. My dissertation was on leadership, and it was on leadership style. And I actually looked at um, uh, in the dissertation. I looked at Stalin, Khrushchev, and Brezhnev. And then for the book, I added Gorbachev. And it really looked at. I made an argument about leadership style uh, that. Um, uh, has been used more recently by scholars far better than I uh, studying leadership. But but the argument that I made and and I drew from work that Professor Bob Jervis from Columbia had done, which is that leaders typically come out of a domestic political environment and important experiences that they've had early in their careers really shape them as leaders. And I looked at the ways in which there was sort of an idea at the time that there was a certain type of Soviet foreign policy approach. And when I looked at it, I thought, gosh, you know, these leaders are all very, very different from one another. But they each were consistent in that the things, the sort of the approaches they'd taken in their domestic political battles showed up later in their foreign policy uh, encounters so, so like how did that States. manifest itself in like uh, Gorbachev, obviously like the most transformational of, of these leaders? Well, even, I mean, the, the, the really obvious one is, um, uh, it was Khrushchev, uh, Nikita Khrushchev, who was a total gambler, uh, and, you know, was constantly, uh, sort of throwing his domestic, uh, opponents off balance, uh, and, uh, you know, of course, uh, gambling uh, quite a bit and uh, in in his domestic politics. And then, you know, unfortunately for him, uh, he tried that in his foreign policy and uh, it didn't work so well. And, uh, of course, one of the reasons for his ouster was, you know, things like the Cuban Missile Crisis and other ill-fated, um, hmm. uh, ill-fated uh, foreign policy endeavors. Uh, but, yes, and, and in that sense, uh, Gorbachev similar. Uh, to Khrushchev and sort of the um, in the boldness of the proposals, uh, in the ability to throw opponents off balance, uh, in terms of in terms of take, taking the initiative, and you know it was really a study that focused on the strategy and tactics uh, of these uh, different leaders, uh, both domestically and then internationally. So uh, did you, after having published that, it was, it was obviously very well received, turned into a book. Did you want to just get ensconced in academia? What was your, what was your plan? So I was always torn between being uh, an academic or being, uh, being more in the policy space. And I had um, one of my mentors at Berkeley uh, who was working on Soviet issues at the time he was at Berkeley, in addition to the Middle East issues that he would become better known for later, uh, was Dennis Ross, uh, who was at Berkeley my first couple of years before he came back to Washington. And he had been the foreign policy advisor for George H.W. Bush during the 1988 campaign. And, 
1989, he came to be director of policy planning for the James Baker State Department. And we talked about whether or not uh, I would come uh, to join the staff. And I really, I made the decision that I wanted to finish the dissertation. I was afraid that if I if I stopped out and went into the government that I would never finish. So I was determined to finish. And I also thought, and I had been advised, uh, I think correctly, that if I if I pursued an academic job and got an academic job, I could always do government later, which I did. But that if I took the government route, it would be, given the nature of academia, it would be harder to get an academic job mm-hmm. later. So I I did choose the academic route. I, I ended up going for my first job to Cornell University. And then uh, about um, three or so years later, I moved down to Washington and, and continued as a professor at George Washington. And any regrets of not joining like the James Baker State Department? Well, you know, I always, I used to tell Dennis later that, uh, you know, if I had known that the Cold War was going to end and <laughs> the whole world was going to change, uh, that I, uh, you know, had I known that, had I known that in 19, January of 1989, uh, or understood that in January of 1989, uh, then I probably would have uh, and perhaps should have made a different decision because mm-hmm. certainly would would have been very exciting. And several of my colleagues uh, from graduate school at Berkeley and Stanford did come work uh, in in the government uh, well, at that time. So, so actually, this brings me back to to a different point about maybe why um, policymakers sometimes ignore academia, uh, which is that, you know, academia often misses the big policy issues, right? Like academ- academics, IR field, uh, you know, kind of famously missed the fall of the Soviet Union, right? I mean, were you one of those one of those people who didn't think it would happen when it would happen? Or did you have your sense that things were changing? Well, I had a sense that things were changing, but I, I know I did not anticipate what was what was going to happen. Uh, and I, you know, I remember the discussions at Berkeley and certainly uh, one of the things that I think was great about being out at Berkeley was I do think there was a recognition very early on that Mikhail Gorbachev was different uh, and that he was for real. You know, in Washington, it took a long time for people to really understand that this guy really was very different and we were in for um, a very different opportunity. And I do recall faculty members at Berkeley and discussions at Berkeley where there was really a sense that, uh, boy, people in Washington just don't realize how different this guy is. But I don't think people, you know, really expected that the Soviet Union was going to break apart. You know, first you had, of course, the collapse of communism throughout Central and Eastern Europe and, uh, you know, anybody who had spent any time in the region knew that, you know, these regimes had very little legitimacy. And so, you know, if you, if you took that, you know, if you took the Soviet power away, they weren't going to fare very well, but that was still a very different scenario than the Soviet Union breaking apart. And even as late as August of 1991 with the coup in Russia and, uh, those who you know lived through that will remember Boris Yeltsin standing on a tank, the president of Russia, and uh, while Gorbachev was being you know kept away by other members of of the Soviet leadership. Uh, you know, even at that point, the thought that the Soviet Union itself was going to disappear by the end of 1991, uh, those were, mm-hmm. I mean, it was pretty, it was pretty crazy, and uh, and I think. The, just the speed with which it happened, even back in 89, the speed with which things fell apart in Central and Eastern Europe. 
At at what point did you realize that Gorbachev was going to be a fundamentally different kind of Soviet leader? Like, was there a moment you remember being like, oh, wow, this guy is is something that is different from everything that has come before him? Well, I think, you know, again, the, you know, the first class I really took was spring of 85 on the Soviet Union. And so I was just learning about it. And I, you know, and this guy comes in and I think, I mean, I was very shaped by my professors, George Breslauer, uh, Gail Lapidus, uh, who was a, you know, major expert on the Soviet Union uh, and at Berkeley at the time. I mean, they were very excited about it. That's how I got so interested in it. They were so excited by what was going on. Uh, and, and, you know, I think really realized earlier than a lot of people in Washington that this was, this was signaling a major change. So I, I got swept up in that, but that's really when I first started studying the place. So when did you end up uh, actually joining government? Cause I, I know you served right in the, the NSC for a while, right? Well, I, w- I, I took a leave from GW in the mid nineties and I, um, I had a fellowship from the Council on Foreign Relations, which is a great fellowship, the International Affairs Fellowship, uh, and I was able to serve in the government. and uh, And it was, gr- you know, GW was great about allowing me to do it, so I'm very grateful to them uh, for letting me letting me do it. There are still academic departments, which uh, really distresses me greatly, that will discourage their tenure track faculty from doing something like that. Uh, and GW just was very encouraging and thought it would be a good experience. Aren't they your competitor and, now? <laughs> well, so G- yes, but that's okay. I, I have I was at GW for 17 years. Okay, so okay. I never say anything bad about my former employer. They, you know, they were very good to me. And I did move to American University, and we we do try to recruit uh, when we recruit students. We certainly are trying to get them to come here instead of there. But uh, but you know they were they were really uh, very good to me. And and what happened was I was working on Russia issues there and. You know, it was an interesting period in 1996 because uh, Boris Yeltsin had his re-election and Bill Clinton was very engaged in that and was very interested to, you know, make sure, you know, that he was, you know, on top of that and, and was following that closely. But what I what I what happened was I felt like being in the government that I really understood the Russia policy very well and and, you know, had been trained very well at Berkeley, but had I was really trying to come to grips with what we were doing here in the United States. How were we making policy? How did our interagency process work? How did things work between the executive branch and the Congress? And uh, I became determined after that time in government to to write about U.S. foreign policy. And so the books that I did uh, after that experience in government have all been from the U.S. perspective, U.S. toward NATO, U.S. toward Russia, and then the broader set of issues that Derek and I wrote about. So what, what was your, so you're, you're in the Clinton national security council. I have to imagine you had some interactions with, with the big man himself. What were those like? Well, I mean, he's, he's absolutely brilliant. And, you know, there are these individuals, there aren't very many of them who will know far. I mean, there's no reason why they should know far more about your topic than you do. Um, You know, you're supposed to be the expert. I had a I had a colleague like that at Cornell, uh, Benedict Anderson, who had the office next to me at Cornell, and he he was like that. We used to have these long conversations, and he would know so much about things I was supposed to know about. And I, and um, President Clinton is uh, is just a truly brilliant man. And uh, so, what was a he, moment where he like kind of tells you more about the topic than you know? Well, it's just in sort of the way in which he comes back. You know, the kinds of questions he's asking. Um, the level, the level of engagement. Uh, certainly, 
you know, he was very focused on Russia. Uh, he was very focused on he was certainly focused on Yeltsin's re-election. I mean, I was providing updates um, on a pretty regular basis about how uh, the campaign in Russia was going and sort of what to look for and, uh, you know, worked closely with colleagues. Why was that election the- so so important to U.S. interests? Like, what was what was the background of that election? He was running well, against a nationalist, right? Was, was it Zhirinovsky? Well, so you had the the main, um, uh, the, the sort of the other... Um, the other leading candidate there. I mean, Jaranowski had been involved and certainly had done very well in parliamentary elections in December of 1993. Um, the Gennady Zaganov, the leader of the Communist Party, uh, was um, the other sort of leading contender in the 1996 election. And uh, the reason that the president was so engaged in it was that, uh, you know, at that time, Yeltsin was seen as somebody who was pushing forward a very pro-Western, pro-democracy, pro-market approach. Uh, he had, you know, gotten his troops out of the Baltic countries. Uh, he, you know, had really worked very well with President Clinton. And I mean, they had a very close relationship and and was doing a lot of things the United States was hoping to see, certainly in, in Europe. And uh, I think, you know, the real concern that President Clinton had, I mean, it's an interesting thing when you just think about the way in which the United States approaches other countries and other elections is, you know, for a country like Russia at that time, from a U.S. perspective, as Russia was, you know, just in the first few years of building democratic institutions, the overwhelming goal is to see those democratic institutions thrive and, and get institutionalized. There had been talk in the spring of that year about the potential that Russia, uh, that Yeltsin might uh, cancel the elections that had been floated by a couple people close to him. And there was real concern in the United States about what that would mean for the future of democracy in Russia. At that time, there was still a lot of hope about democracy in Russia. And you have those sort of broader institutional goals and hopes for a country's democratic future. And then from President Clinton's standpoint, you know, here was a guy he was working well with and he didn't want to see, I mean, the last thing anybody wanted to see was the communists to come back in power in Russia uh, and potentially take Russia in a very different direction. So um, so it was something that he was very engaged in. What what happened uh, to those institutions? I mean, obviously, the, the effort to build uh, sort of the, the, the structure for a liberal democracy failed. Um, what reasons do you identify as as being sort of most most uh prominent for those failures well i think you know just you know you've had that whole i mean russia soviet history um was really sort of working against the strong establishment of a democratic culture and uh yeltsin himself you know was a flawed leader i think you know he really thought this was the direction Russia should go in, but uh, he had his own set of issues. And certainly with respect to his own appeal to a more nationalist uh, audience in Russia, uh, he struggled with that. And then, you know, for many Russians, the 1990s are a period where they saw a lot of chaos. They saw a huge economic decline. So when Putin came in in early 2000, I mean, he, he was... He was basically making the argument, look, you know, we're not we're not doing that anymore. I mean, we're going to consolidate our Russia as a strong country. We're going to reemerge as a great power on the world stage. And I think, you know, he's been very driven by 
wanting to avoid the chaos that he saw in the aftermath of the collapse of the Soviet Union and really wanted to rebuild Russia with a strong state and, uh, you know, controls the... Um, controls the media and has a lot of you know ways of of maintaining his power and uh, certainly high oil prices early on in his time in power um, enabled him to have funds to to do all sorts of things when Yeltsin was in power uh, oil prices were very low so there wasn't a lot of of extra money there for him to to provide support for people so I think you know I think there just are a lot of factors and you do have people in Russia who still want to see Russia have a democratic future, and I hope that the United States will always, um, even in times when it's hard to provide support for them, uh, tangible support for them, will always at least uh, vocally uh, talk about the importance of that kind of reform and and be willing to meet with opposition movements and so on. So how long did you spend in uh, in government, in the Clinton I was in government for just a year, and uh, then I came back, and I was, I, I, it was clear to me that uh, that I was I was better suited to an academic environment, and so I, uh, uh, but I still stayed engaged. I, I, I did um, work from a number of different think tank settings, and I was at Brookings for a little bit. Uh, I spent a significant period of time as a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. And so that enabled me to maintain from an academic perch uh, close ties with folks in government. And, you know, my last two books were written with people who've had very prominent government careers. And uh, so that's also enabled me to keep close ties with that community. Uh, and now, of course, you're, you're uh, dean at, at uh, American School for International Service. Um, so what, what other projects you're working on? What, what else can we look forward to you from the future? We talked about your Bridging the Gap initiative. What, what's down the road? Well, so most of my job, of course, is spent trying to build this school and work with the faculty and students here to make it an even stronger school, work with our alumni. And we're very proud of of what we've been able to do. We have an incredible student body, undergraduate and graduate, that's about 3,000 strong, and that includes about 250 students who are doing our online master's degree programs and uh, close to 120 full-time faculty from a whole range of fields, and we continue to hire just really the most outstanding academics. I'm very excited uh, about all of that. We have a new president at AU coming on board January, uh, June 1st, Sylvia Matthews Burwell, who was formerly Secretary of Health and Human Services, and everybody on campus is extremely excited about her coming on board June 1st. So, so we have a lot going on, and yeah, from a from a sort of my personal uh, standpoint, other you know than the work I do on behalf of the school, uh, I I am deeply engaged in our Bridging the Gap project. Uh, I have another faculty colleague here who works with me on that, and and, uh, and a associate director. And we're just looking for ways to continue to promote this effort and to do training. And we've also been working uh, with a number of provosts nationwide to try to broaden out what we do beyond just the political science and international relations field and really think about ways where universities can across the board become much more deeply engaged in policy uh, issues and, and engage the public uh, so that people can really see that research can have value to broader society, and so that's um, so that's where I. But isn't a lot there of time. also? I mean, not 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 to 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 be too provocative, but isn't there also value in research for research's own sake? Right. I mean, there. Yes. That, that's like a, a kind of a tenet of science, right? That you do the science to learn stuff, not necessarily 
because it's it's sort of larger value to the world. Because you might not that's know correct. the larger that, to the value yes, of the world correct. at the moment that you're doing the research. That's correct. And of course, you know, the pursuit, you know, you're 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 curious about something, you want to solve a problem, uh, you wanna find the truth as you you know, you sort of seek it, you wanna overturn a conventional wisdom on something. Uh, and you know, there there is the basic research, there is applied research, huge value to basic research, and of course some of that basic research that gets done uh becomes applied later on. So yeah, I'm a, I'm a, a thousand flower, let a thousand flowers bloom kind of guy. Uh, and I think you need lots of different kinds of work being done. But I, I do feel like uh, if if you're in a position where you're studying issues that are of central importance to society, uh, that it's I, I think it's important for academics to find a way uh, to help translate their academic work so that the broader public can can understand that. And I think that for younger scholars in particular today, uh, that's even something that they want to do even more than people did when I was coming along, in large part because technology allows them to do so. They can get the, you know, they don't have to wait two years for their findings to come out. They can tweet about it. They can do a blog post about it. There's the Monkey Cage blog for political scientists at the Washington Post. It provides a great outlet for uh, for political scientists, there are all sorts of other opportunities for people in other disciplines, and uh, I think that you're really seeing younger scholars really do a lot of great academic work that also they can translate for the broader public, and uh, I'm very excited about that. All right. Well, Jim, thank you so much for your time. This is great. Thank you. Great to talk to you. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Jim. And we have some good episodes coming up, so stay tuned. Again, huge thank you to everyone who's been supportive of the show during this fundraising drive. I will continue to think of other offers, incentives that might inspire more of you to become premium members of the podcast. Help me grow the show. Help me sustain the show. And again, there is no other show like this out there. If this is something that you find yourself returning to day in, day out, week in, week out, please do support the show. Become a premium subscriber. I need your help. This kind of pleading pleading will will end soon. Uh, But before then, please become a, a premium subscriber. I so need your support. Thank you. And see you next time. Bye.